what a great thing it is to be a part of the church for which Jesus Christ shed his blood. To be a member of the body of Christ, to be a part of this great kingdom. As I mentioned this morning, I'm going to briefly survey what we covered. I know there are some who may be here tonight that wasn't able to be here this morning. And so for just a moment or two, I want to remind you where we have been. I tried to point out that when a person thinks about the church and the image that comes to our mind, I am fearful that we have allowed the world to shape our thinking to the point where we look at the Lord's church as if it is just one denomination among many denominations, as if it is just a body that you can pick and choose as if you're going to a restaurant because perhaps this restaurant offers this food that you like and this one over here doesn't, and so you pick and choose on the basis of your own preferences. And what shapes that image? I suggest to you it's the world. When we looked at Psalm 106 as well as Nehemiah chapter 13, we realized that it's possible for the people of the world to have an impact on who we are and what we think. But as Brother Josh just read just a few moments ago, God intended that we see the fellowship of the mystery which from ages has been hidden but is now revealed in Jesus Christ and in His church. And so what we did, we pointed out, this is going to be the first of six lessons to try to change our thinking from worldly people's thoughts to biblical thoughts so that we can use the language of Scripture to describe the church, so we can think of it in the terms that God wants us to think of. And so this first lesson is the church that the prophets saw. The second lesson will be the description of the church that our Lord gave when He gave the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. The third lesson will be that of Paul as he describes the church as the beautiful bride of Christ. Then we will discuss the declaration, the gospel of the kingdom as it is stated. As we see in the book of Acts and they began to preach what the church would look like and how the church would act. Next will be the design of the church, its organization, how God intended for the church to be run and the function of the church, what he wants us to do. Why are we a body of believers? And then finally, the deliverance of the church as he presents it back to the Father. This morning, we looked at the prophets of Joel, Amos, Isaiah, and Micah. We noticed as we looked at the prophet Joel that he pictured the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised them that he would give in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 8. We also notice that Peter said in Acts 2 and verse 16, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel and how that this marked the arrival of the church. So as they looked forward, what they saw, even in a very dim mirror, as Paul would use the illustration in 1 Corinthians 13, they saw the church as an outpouring of God's Spirit. Second of all, we looked at Amos, and Amos look back and he he pictured the coming of the kingdom like the restoration or rebuilding of the tabernacle. And we pointed out that the passage in Amos drew attention to the fact 
that the remnant of Edom, the Gentiles, would be welcomed into this. And James, as he quotes this in Acts chapter 15, specifically makes reference that this is what it was talking about. And then finally, as we ended the lesson this morning, we talked about Isaiah and Micah, how they saw the Lord's house on the top of the mountains and all the nations were flowing to it. And we saw that it was truly exalted. It was to be desired. And then it would begin in Jerusalem. One point that I did not add on to this morning's lesson was the fact in Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 5, he said, even to those within my house and within my walls, I will give a better name, a new name, which the mouth of the Lord would name. Also in Isaiah 62 and verse 2, the same thoughts are found. And when we come to Acts 11 and verse 26, Acts 26 and verse 28, and 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16, we find the name Christian. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. But now let's continue our lesson as we begin looking at what the prophet Jeremiah saw. If you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31, we're going to begin with verse 31 and read through verse 33. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, the church, the kingdom, was going to be ushered in with a change of the covenants. You see, there's a contrast that Jeremiah is using. He's going back all the way to Mount Sinai, and he's talking about the day that God made a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And he said he's going to make a new one, but it's not going to be the same. There's going to be some distinctions. The writer of the book of Hebrews makes a major point out of this. He says in Hebrews chapter 8, beginning with verse 6, But now as he is an obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. He said the covenant then was not that great because it lacked some things. He talked about if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no place sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant. And then he begins to quote, Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. You see, what he's trying to say is, is we live under a better covenant. I want you to think for just a second as those people who heard that really needed to understand that covenant, whenever they sinned, they had to go and offer a sacrifice of an animal. But that sin was not forgiven by the blood of that animal. In fact, every year there was a remembrance of those same sins because it was impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Hebrews chapter 10. 
But there's going to be a new covenant established upon better promises, one in which you can be baptized for the remission of your sins, and those sins are wiped away. One in which you can ask for the Lord's forgiveness and it'll never be brought up again. That's going to be a new and better covenant. It will be substantially better also because it would one that be written on the minds and the hearts of those who are under it. Because those people who were born to those descendants after Mount Sinai were under that law because of their birth. As they were reared as children, they were taught, this is your law, this is your people. But when you come to the new covenant, God said, I will write my laws on their hearts. I'm going to put it in their minds. It's no longer going to be just a written law. It's going to be a law of choice. And so... You didn't become a child of God because your mother and your daddy were Christians and all you automatically become a Christian. You become a Christian because you choose to be one. Because God's law is in your mind and on your heart. This law also brings a new government. It's not based on that Old Testament. Because at Mount Sinai there was given one that the descendants of Aaron would be the priest. And we read in Hebrews 7 and verse 12, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. So what is Jeremiah seeing? If he were describing to those people of his day, he would say, you've got to realize when this new covenant comes and this new kingdom comes, that there is going to be a new law and it's going to be much better. Now if you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. I love studying Daniel's prophecy. He uses such vivid terminology as he describes the things that are going to take place. When you get to Daniel chapter 2, there is a vision that Nebuchadnezzar has, a dream, and it troubles Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't know the interpretation of it. And so what Daniel will do is he'll provide what he saw and he'll provide the interpretation For just a few moments, let's look at verses 31 through 35 and then verses 44 and 45. And here's what he tells Nebuchadnezzar. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image head was of fine gold, its chest and its arms silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron and feet partly of iron, part of clay. Now listen carefully. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so there was no trace found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. I want you to visualize what Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar. This was the dream. 
Here's this huge image. But this stone hits the foot of that image and it just crumbles. It falls down. And not only does it fall down, but here comes the wind and it blows away and there's none of it left. You drop down to verses 44 and 45 and he explained to Nebuchadnezzar, You, O king, are that head of gold. After your kingdom shall rise another that is inferior to yours. And he goes on. And then he gets to the last of where the picture of the image falling. And he says, In the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation, sure. You know what that stone is? It's the church. That stone is going to grow, and certainly the Lord Jesus as the head of that church is is there. But he says that stone that hits his image is going to blossom. It's going to fill the whole earth. Those other kingdoms are going to disappear. Let me ask you a question. Where are the Babylonians today? Where are the Medo-Persians today? Where's the mighty empire of Alexander the Great? Where is that once powerful nation that produced fear in the hearts of men and women all over the world called Rome? They don't exist. But the Lord's church exists in McMinnville, Tennessee, throughout the United States, and all the way around the world. They didn't conquer. They didn't win. And Daniel saw the growth of the kingdom. The interpretation of the vision was picturing God's kingdom. The head represented Babylon. The breast and arms represented the Medo-Persians. The belly and thighs represented Greece. And the legs and feet represented Rome. And the kingdom was established during the time of that fourth kingdom. Now here's another thing, like I made the point this morning. If a church began and it didn't begin in Jerusalem, then we know one thing from Isaiah and Micah, that it's not the right kingdom. If it began somewhere later or somewhere else, it's not the Lord's kingdom. If a kingdom did not begin in the days of the Roman Empire, then it's the wrong church. If you have a church that began in the 1800s, the 1500s, The 600s, it's too late. Can't be the right one. Now if you'll turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. Let's look at verses 11 through 16 and then verses 22 and 23. Uh, Brother Stanley didn't realize when he chose the first song how well it was going to apply to the lesson. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day in which he is among the scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on the cloudy and dark day. 
And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their foals shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in good fold and feed in the rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. And I know some of you are probably thinking, oh, he's just talking about the restoration of the people to the land. Oh, this is just them coming back and how God's going to take care of them. Keep reading with me. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost, bring back what was driven away, bind up what was broken, strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. You get down to verse 22. Therefore I will save my flock and they shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. There's going to be one shepherd. He's going to be a descendant of David. And you might think this was something then, but no, there's one shepherd. The shepherd to whom he refers us over this one flock is going to be the Lord. How do I know that? Because when I go to John chapter 10, verses 14 through 16, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own, as the Father knows me, and so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, and them I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock, and one shepherd, exactly what Ezekiel said. You see, Jesus is that great shepherd willing to lay down his life for his sheep. Because as Ezekiel describes this to his people, he's trying to get them to picture what kind of nature the Lord's church is going to be. And it's going to involve other sheep which we know to be the Gentiles. In 1 Peter 5, verse 4, as he's writing to elders, he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will see the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now let's look at the last one. If you'll turn with me to the book of Zechariah, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Then speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is Branch. From his place he shall branch out, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he shall build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear the glory, and shall sit down and rule on his throne, so he shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, I want you to notice a picture, if you will, of the temple. But don't miss some of the terminology in the middle of verse 13. He shall be a priest on his throne. Combining two of the offices. You see, when Zechariah wrote, he was writing during the days of Zerubbabel. The temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed by the Babylonians. 
After they had returned from the captivity, they had laid the foundation, but they didn't finish it. And so you had Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi all coming along saying, God says, build the temple, build the temple, build the temple. But Zechariah's eye looked past the building of Zerubbabel to a time in the future when there would be one who would be called the branch. What do you mean by branch? Like an offshoot. Like you've got a a tree and there's a limb that comes off. A branch that comes off. This is the root, the branch of David. Just like we noticed earlier. He saw the church as the spiritual temple built by the branch, Christ. Who would be both king and priest. You see, there was a problem under the Old Testament. David was from the tribe of Judah. And yet, the priests were from the tribe of Levi. You can't have a situation under the Old Covenant where you have a priest and a king because they're from two different tribes. In fact, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14, it's evident that our Lord has sprung out of Judah from which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. That's the reason why Hebrews 6.20 says, Wherefore the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And you know what made Melchizedek special? You go back to chapter 5, he had neither beginning of days nor end of life neither father nor mother. And it's not meaning that he didn't have a birth and he didn't have an end of life of Melchizedek. It doesn't mean he didn't have a mother and didn't have a father. It's meaning that there was no beginning time, ending time. He didn't trace his lineage from a mother and a father. That's the order of Melchizedek. Not based on that Old Testament law. So the picture that Zechariah sees is a New Testament image. Not an Old Testament one. And it's going to be a spiritual temple. And guess what the book of Ephesians talks about? The Lord's church is being a temple. But I told Brother Stanley I'd like for him to lead the song that's a song of invitation tonight. And when you get to the end of the book of Zechariah, to chapter 13 in verse 1, Zechariah says, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and uncleanness. A fountain open, as a song says, filled with Emmanuel's veins. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Zechariah is looking forward to the coming of the Savior, who's going to be the head of the church, who's going to build that temple of which you and I can be a part of that body. These great prophets just had little glimpses. It's almost as if I had a box up here and I had something really valuable in that box. And I've got a little hole in the top and I can say, okay, you can have a real quick peek. And you look in and you get just a little bit of a peek of what it looks like. And then you go back and you try to describe it to somebody. That's exactly what the prophets did. And here's what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully 
who prophesied of the grace that should come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not unto themselves, but to us they were ministering these things, which have now been reported to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent forth from heaven, which things angels desire to look into. Oh, there's a view. Just little bits. They wanted to know about it. But it's for us. The great reports were to prepare the people for the coming of and the reception of the Lord's church. And what great privilege we are that we can be a part of that wonderful body. You see, we just really started to see the church as God wants us to see it. Oh, there's so much more to come as we look at the Lord's plans and we look at Paul's as he presents them to us. But you know, it's perhaps tonight that you're a persuaded person. You're, you're a person sitting there saying, I know that I need to be a Christian. I know what I need to do. When we sing the invitation song, come forward. Be baptized tonight. Because you believe that Jesus is a Christ, repenting of your sins, make that decision now. Don't let another hour pass you by. If you're a Christian and you know there's sin in your life and you've got to deal with it, don't carry that burden any longer. Would you come while we stand and sing?